Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, where we will read verses 1 through, through 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my flock. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall, ex he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and sh he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now for the ministry of your Spirit as we come to read and study together your holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. O Lord, may your Spirit come and move powerfully amongst us that we would behold wonderful things in your law. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 586 BC, things looked bleak, not only for the fate of the people of God, but for the whole redemptive endeavor itself. God had promised right on the heels of Adam's rebellion, and with that rebellion, the devastating corruption of sin's entry into the world. In Genesis 3, right on the heels of that sin, God had promised to Adam, and, and through Adam, He promised to humanity that He would send a Redeemer. He said that a son would be born, and that that child would crush evil under His heel. And that initial promise had been expanded and elaborated to the point that by Jeremiah's day, putting the covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David together, it was clear that this Redeemer was coming to create a new kingdom that wasn't limited by geographical boundaries, and one in which the people of God would find rest, and most importantly, would find reunion with God. But by 586, it looked like the whole thing was coming apart at the seams. The people of God brought out of Egypt by God and established in the promised land as His own treasured possession were no longer rejoicing in the union that they had with God. No longer were they actively looking forward to the final and full fulfillment of everything that God had said, but instead by 586 they had descended into a point of utter cynicism in which they wantonly broke the law 
of God and said that there was nothing that he could do about it. Jeremiah famously encapsulated the spirit of the age in Jeremiah chapter 7, where he addressed these sinners and said to them, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Their confidence was in the mistaken belief that God could never destroy them because they had the temple. Instead of being the focal point of, of worship and adoration, they had, they had twisted the temple and they'd reduced it down to really being nothing more than a, a, a talisman, a lucky charm that would ward off evil while they went on and did whatever they wanted. Instead of revering and adoring God, they acted as if God was, was a senile old man who couldn't see down the mountain from his temple. And so they would go up to sacrifice and say, we are delivered. And then they would come back down the Temple Mount to go on breaking the law and worshiping the idols of the surrounding pagan nations. It was, it was horrible. It was perverted. It was twisted. But of course, the Lord is not mocked. And He had warned them through the prophets. He warned them through Jeremiah, that if they continued in this, then they would be cast out of the land, and they would forfeit the blessings that they had as God's treasured possession, and they would be taken into pagan Babylon if they were to go after the ways of the pagan nations. Then the punishment would fit the crime, and they would be sent to live in a pagan nation. But instead of repenting, instead of repenting as even wicked Nineveh had done when they had heard the same warning of judgment when it came from Jonah, instead of, of repenting, these Judeans just doubled down. And they mocked Jeremiah, and instead of listening to him, they followed after the more popular preachers who proclaimed, as Jeremiah famously paraphrases them in Jeremiah chapter 6, these preachers who went out and said, peace, peace, where there was no peace. And so in 586, the Lord summoned Babylon to come and do His bidding and to take disobedient Judah out into exile. It was a moment. It was absolutely shocking a moment that was, that was scarcely believable. Do you remember how, how the psalmist encapsulates it in Psalm 137, a psalm written in Babylon? And the psalmist encapsulates just this other utter shock and disbelief that, that ran through these exiled Judeans. He says, by the waters of Babylon... 
There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors acquired of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You understand, that's a picture of, of utter hopelessness. As they sat next to the Euphrates, they, they put their instruments away. There was no more singing to come out of their mouths because what could they sing about anymore? There was no singing. There was no joy. There was only weeping. There was only shock. There was only disbelief. And the question hung thick in the air, was this the end? Was this the end of Judah? Was this the end of redemptive history? Were all the promises of God now coming to a, a grinding halt? And if we, if we use a metaphor, we picture the progression of the covenants like the growing of a tree. In that first promise in, in Genesis chapter 3, God had I put in the seedling, the seedling promise of a son who would come to crush evil under his feet. And with every successive covenant, that, that little seedling grew a bit bigger, a bit stronger, a, a little more beautiful. And by the time of the covenant with, with David, this, this tree was strong and it was blossoming. But in 586, when the Babylonians came and took the Judeans into exile, when they came and devastated Canaan, when they came and reduced Jerusalem down to a heap of rubble, when they came and destroyed the temple, it was as if that tree had had an axe taken to it. And it came crashing down to the ground, and all that was left was a barren stump, or so it appeared. Because here, into this bleakness, into this apparent barrenness, God, through His prophet Jeremiah, brings a word of, of almost unbelievable hope. Here in the midst of all this apparent hopelessness comes this word from God, this promise that, that is as awful as, as all of this was, and it was utterly awful. This promise comes and it says, this is not the end. But look at what God says through Jeremiah in verse 3. He says, after the exile, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and, and multiply. You, you hear the echoes of the commission that God gave to Adam in the garden before the fall. This is a promise of, of, of restoration all the way back to Eden. He says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more and not be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Into this wasteland comes this 
promise. Into this, into this darkness comes this shaft of, of light. Into the ugliness of Judah's rebellion comes this beautiful promise that God will not abandon His people. He's sending them out. He's driving them out, but not forever. The day will come when He'll gather them, that He'll bring them back from their Cain-like wandering on the earth, and He'll bring them back into Eden. As a good shepherd, He'll go out and He'll gather His flock from where they are wandering, and He'll bring them back into their fold. He'll bring them into His fold, where they'll no longer have to be on alert, no longer afraid of what lies there, but they will come into the walls of that fold, and they'll find rest and, and peace. Out of the depths of exile, God promised that while His people were receiving the hard consequences of their sin, that He would bring a wonderful redemption for them, a second exodus, in which He will bring them up out of the slavery of their sin, and He'll bring them into this true and better promised land. Because this wouldn't just be history repeating itself. This promised land wouldn't be like the one that Joshua had brought them into. This land to which God promises to bring His people to from this exile, He promises this will be an even better kingdom ruled over by an even better king, by the true king. That's what He says in verse 5, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And do you understand salvation had always been wrapped up in the, in the reign of a son of David? By the time God had given his covenant to David, it had become clear that the son that God had promised to Adam and Eve was to be this son of David, this, this righteous king who would finally complete the exodus and bring the people of God into that perfected Eden, into that true land of milk and honey, that He would be the one to, to bring them into a place of peace from sin and from the effects of sin, that He would be the one to lead them into, into fellowship with God, union and communion with God. Now, it was a promise that was wonderful when God gave it to David in 2 Samuel 7, but it's a promise that had always fallen short, and never more so than now, in 586. It was the failure of the sons of David that had brought them to this point. It was the failure of the kings to lead the people of God in the paths of righteousness that had precipitated the exile. But here God says He'll bring another. He'll bring another son. Here God says He'll not allow the sin of man to frustrate His promises. God says that He'll not allow the, the sin of humanity to stand in the way of the fulfillment of salvation. And so, while the present kingdom would look like nothing more than a dead stump after the 
Babylonians had devastated Palestine. And after they had raised Jerusalem to the ground and desecrated the temple, God says, from that stump, a righteous branch will spring forth. From that stump, a sprout will grow. And in Him, all the promises of God will finally come to their magnificent fulfillment. God says, from the wasteland of their sin, an unimaginably glorious kingdom would be raised. What is evident in all of this is that this would all be by grace. There simply could be no notion after the exile that there was anything inherently good that would make anyone savable. The people of God in Canaan, of all the people to ever live on the face of the earth, had been given all, every possible advantage. If ever there was a people who were likely to be able to work their way to salvation, you understand it was the people of God living in Canaan. The very ground that they walked on was the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. They just had to to bend down and and grab a, a handful of that dirt and let that run through their fingers, and they were touching the promises of God fulfilled. Everything that God had said to Abraham and to Moses and to David fulfilled on the paths that they walked on. They had the temple, this glorious house of God on the pinnacle of Jerusalem, this monument that that cried out to all who who gazed upon it that that God is, is merciful and God is with His people, and while He is transcendent and holy beyond our comprehension, yet He is imminent and close to His people. He is Emmanuel, and He lives with His people. They had the sacrifices that continually preached of the mercy of God, that here was this infinitely holy God who says that He will accept a substitute in the place of the guilty sinner. They had the Word of God. They had the promises of redemption. But yet, despite it all, their wandering sinful hearts had still gone after other gods. Despite it all, despite every possible advantage that they had been given, yet they still put God in a corner and followed after the desires of their own hearts. But if one thing was clear at the exile, it was, as Paul says in Romans 3, that none are righteous, not even one. If these Judeans couldn't be righteous, then no one can. And so, as God gives this promise, not just of restoration, but rather a promise of perfect fulfillment. It is clear that this son of David, this righteous branch, isn't just going to be instrumental in fulfilling God's promises. He's going to be absolutely essential. This whole thing is resting upon him. 
This whole thing hinges upon this one man. And it is, of course, the coming of this righteous branch that we celebrate now as we go through Advent and into Christmas. There was a partial fulfillment of this when the exiles would return to Palestine and 70 years after they had been taken away. But they would, they would come back and under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they would at least partially rebuild Jerusalem. They would build the temple of sorts, though its glory would never be like the one that, they had, been, that had been destroyed. There was a partial fulfillment, but that's not what God had spoken of here. The people were back, but not all of them. They were back, but there was no son of David ruling over them. They had returned from the clutches of Babylon, but it was not an exodus that even matched Egypt's far less outstripped it. For 500 years, this promise lay unfulfilled. For 500 years, the promise at times only seemed to just get further and further away as Palestine was conquered by empire after empire. But then, the angel Gabriel came to a young virgin, came to Mary, young teenage Mary, in the backwater village of Nazareth, and told her that she would conceive in her womb, that she would bear a son, and that this son would be the fulfillment of this promise. It's what the angel said in Luke chapter 1, where he says that of this son, he will be great, and he will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It was the proclamation that the waiting was over. It was the declaration that the stump that had laid barren for so long was about to germinate. And this child, the angel is saying these words of Jeremiah are coming to their fulfillment. In this child was coming into the world the long-anticipated king in whom all the promises of God will find their yea and their amen. You see, when Christ came into this world, he came to establish a kingdom that is unlike anything the world had ever seen before. The promised land was good, at least for a while, but it never quite delivered the satisfaction and the rest and the peace that had been promised. There was always work to be done. There were always sacrifices to be offered. There were always enemies to be contended with. The kings, at least some of them, had been good but none of them had really lived up to the ideal of Deuteronomy 17. All of them, in some way, had failed to keep the commandments of God. In some way, had failed to devour the Word of God, had failed to keep themselves holy and unstained by the world. But when Christ came into the world, and this is the good news of Christmas, when Christ came into the world, the waiting came to an end. 
the anticipation was over, and finally, we got the King that we need. And this child promised to Mary would be born the perfect King, the perfect Son of David, who would never turn aside from the task set before him, who would never buckle under the pressure from his enemies, but would, who would press on to establish this kingdom of justice and righteousness. But of course, as wonderful as that is, as wonderful as it is that this king has come to establish his perfect kingdom, there is a problem. There is an elephant in the room. We are not perfect. We are sinners. Sinners just like the Judeans who were sent off into exile. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, Sidion, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not Jeremiah 7. But listen, you are Jeremiah 7. You are that bad. The exile isn't just a story of a particularly rebellious people in a land far, far away a long, long time ago. The exile is your story. It's a mirror that the Word of God holds up to you to shock you into seeing your absolute unworthiness to dwell within this kingdom. There was nothing that the Judeans had done that does not lie at least in seed in your hearts. By the grace of God, you may not, Jeremiah 7, have oppressed the widow or the orphan and used their disadvantage for your own advantage, but you have not extended your hand to help them as the law of God calls you to do. Your thoughts towards the poor and vulnerable have not been wholly merciful. You have not always looked down upon the poor and simply said, there but by the grace of God go I. There are some that you have looked down upon and congratulated yourself that you are not like them. Maybe, Jeremiah 7, you have not shed innocent blood but your thoughts towards your neighbor have not always been free from malice or hatred, and you have not always comforted the distressed or protected the innocent. You may not have gone after the bales, but you have a heart that is, as Calvin put it, a perpetual factory of idols. And we could go on Every sin that Jeremiah denounces Judah for committing, it lies in your own hearts. It is a sin that you have committed in thought, in word, or in deed. And so the question for you, just like these Judeans, is as wonderful as this promise of the coming king is, as wonderful as the arrival of that king is, how on earth can a people as unholy as we are possibly enter into this kingdom? How can the righteousness and the justice of this kingdom not stand at its gates like two great sentinels proclaiming that we shall not enter in? Well, the solution <clears throat> is found in verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. How? 
because this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Right? You understand what that is saying. You understand why that is so good. It is saying that not only has Jesus come as the branch of David to establish the perfect kingdom of God, he has come as our righteousness. That is, he has come to even do what needed to be done to make us fit to dwell in that perfect kingdom. It's what we had looked at on Reformation Sunday, wasn't it? Just a few weeks ago, it's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that passage that had so tormented Martin Luther. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? What Paul is talking about is not the righteousness of God that stands against us in our sin. He's talking about the righteousness that comes from God and covers our sin. He's talking about the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to believers, just as our sin is imputed to Christ in what we call the great exchange. Jesus taking the guilt of our sin upon himself and going to the cross subjected to the holy, just, and righteous wrath of God that stands against us in our sin. And we are given His righteousness, His righteous record credited to our account, His robe of righteousness put on our shoulders so that we can come without fear into this perfect kingdom of God. That's what Jeremiah is talking about here, this glorious king, King Jesus, he says, this branch of David, this sprout of David. He is this glorious king who is the Lord, our righteousness, the one who establishes his kingdom of righteousness and justice, and then gives us sinners the righteousness we need to dwell within it. And that is why it is good and right for us to begin this Advent season by coming to the Lord's table. Everything that is good about Christmas, everything that is good about the coming of Christ the King, everything that is good about the birth of Jesus hinges on what will happen in the death of Jesus. As we come to this table this morning, as we see the body of Christ broken for us, as it is represented in the bread, as we see the blood of Christ spilt for us, as it is represented in the cup, we are confronted with this truth that we all are far too sinful to enter the kingdom of Christ on our own. But we are comforted that we have in Christ a gracious King who has borne the penalty of His own law against our sin, who more than that has given us His own righteousness, a righteousness of perfect obedience, so that we could be brought in, so that we could come now and settle in this perfect kingdom. We have just heard the gospel in the preaching of God's Word. But now as we gather around this table, 
we see the gospel. And we will, in a sense, as we eat and drink, taste the gospel. All of it a gift of God's grace, a condescension to our weakness to help us grasp the enormity of Christ's coming into the world and our salvation that was facilitated by it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gave instructions about the Lord's Supper. And there he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Did you hear what the apostle is saying? What we do as we come to this table is solemn and it is serious. As we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, we are publicly professing our faith in Christ. We are saying that we don't just understand Jesus to be a king, we understand him to be our king, my king. We're saying as we eat this bread and drink this cup that we don't just believe Jesus to have come into this world to establish a kingdom, but we're saying that we believe that he has come into this world to establish the kingdom in which we now dwell because of our faith in him. And so if you're here this morning, and if you've not yet put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then please just let the elements pass you by as they are served. As the apostle says, for you to eat and drink would be to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But let it be the last time that you are found as a spectator here. This gospel is for you. Jesus is a Savior for you, if only you put your faith in him. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and mercy that you have shown to us in King Jesus. Oh Lord, you could have left your people as that desolate stump, but yet in your grace you brought in Christ a King who would cover our sin and who would reunite us to God. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate upon these things, to consider these things, and to exult in the graciousness and mercifulness of our God. We pray now that as we come to this table, as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, these ordinary elements that are now set apart to a sacred use, we pray that you would bless these as a true means of grace to us that our faith would be strengthened, 
that our grip on Christ would be made more sure and our joy in Him deepened. Father, bless us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.